0: This week on the Back Table Podcast.
1: Spend a little time on the internet and type in the keywords of whatever your idea might be, whether it's a device, a a drug, a technology. Uh, There are millions of patents that have been issued uh, since the late 1700s by the USPTO. See what's out there. You might be surprised that your specific idea is not covered. And what I have learned is that even if you have an idea that may seem similar to some things that are, are patented already, with a good group of patent attorneys, you can usually find some angle that makes your idea different. Okay. Now that really provides a huge barrier to a company taking advantage of a physician, even just having the patents filed. <laughs>
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Table ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. My name is Gopi Shaw, and
2: I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist here in Dallas at UT Southwestern. And my name is Ashley Agan, and I'm a general ENT, also in Dallas, Texas. And we are your hosts. Hey, everyone, really exciting news. Our listeners asked, and we have
0: answered. We now have CME available. You can get AMA Category 1 CME for listening to Backtable and then filling out a reflection. You can find the CME links on the episode pages at backtable.com, or you can also find the CME links in the show notes. It's a small cost for the credit, much less than you would spend at a conference, and it helps support the show. Powered by CMEFI, using AI technology to bring the right education to the right place at the right time. You can do this in just a few minutes. If you're already listening to Backtable, might as well get a CME credit for it. Again, this helps support the show and allows us to keep bringing you great content. Now on with the episode.
2: We've got a really cool topic today. For those of you, anyone who's ever thought, you know, like, there really should be a tool for this, or someone should really you know, think of, of a problem for the solution. Or if you've ever thought, I could totally have thought of this. I can't believe I didn't patent this <laughs> first. Then this is the show for you. We, we have um, a great guest today. Dr. Keith Matheny is with us. And we'll um, do a quick intro and then, and then get into it. Dr. Matheny is a Vanderbilt trained otolaryngologist in North Dallas, emphasizing rhinology and sleep in adults and children. He has a passion for the business aspects of otolaryngology, as well as new technology, pharmacotherapy, and procedures in ENT. He holds numerous patents and patents pending on bioabsorbable local drug delivery implants for use in sinus and ear surgery, founding two device companies around these technologies. Is also the founder, chairman, and CEO of US ENT Partners, an ENT-focused group purchasing organization bringing 17 to 20 percent discounts on the high-cost supplies that ENT physicians use in their office daily. Most recently, Dr. Matheny has launched another company with software to allow physicians to monitor sleep apnea patients remotely on an ongoing basis using common devices such as an Apple Watch. Allowing physicians the ability to file new telemedicine CBT codes to generate new revenue for their practices while dramatically improving patient care. Welcome to the show, Dr. Matheny.
1: Thank you, ladies. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for this opportunity.
2: Thank you for
0: coming on. Can you first tell us a little bit about your practice? I know we had this nice intro, but it'd be nice to hear from you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I, as uh, Ashley stated a moment ago, I am in community practice in North Dallas in the suburbs, uh, directly contiguous with Dallas, uh, but a very nice, nice area to practice. And it's actually right where I grew up. So I've been here just shy of 20 years uh, following my, my training at Vanderbilt. And I, I love my practice. We are in an area with very highly educated patients, very motivated patients. It's a young population and it's a very vibrant community. So so it's a fun place to practice.
2: That's awesome. So let's kind of talk about how you found yourself developing, you know, medical devices, you know, starting companies. At what point in your practice were you like, hey, you know, there's a problem that needs fixing and so I'm just going to do that?
1: Sure. This was uh, very serendipitous, quite frankly. You know, uh, many of us. Uh, that are ENT physicians and and surgical subspecialists. We go to school until we're 33, 34 years old, straight through. And in most cases, we never even have one semester of intro to business, right? And then we finish our training and uh, those of us that that don't stay in, in the academic realm are unleashed on these multi-million dollar businesses. And so... I was no different. I mean, I, I majored in biology uh, at Baylor University and then go Bears. <laughs> we have a big game this afternoon and went to medical school. And like most of the physicians listening to this, use the exact same textbooks to have the exact same classes, you know, biology, biochemistry, physiology. And so kind of did the degree again, right? Never having anyone really, even even a lunch lecture, talk about running a business, even though most of us come out and and don't stay in academics. And so even though physicians are extremely intelligent people, without some basics, we often delegate business operations to those in our practice that have gone before us. And so most of our practices are run by the employee who has the most tenure. (laughs) And she or he may not have any credentials either. In fact, many times those are medical assistants or LVNs that again, have been around and more or less have learned the ropes of coding and billing, reimbursement, those types of things, but maybe not so much. And so when I left Vanderbilt, my story was exactly this. I joined two physicians who are wonderful people and wonderful doctors they continue. One is retired, uh, the founder of our practice, which is 50 years old, but the other one is still in practice. Wonderful people, but similar story. No business expertise and no real interest in running the business. And so when I showed up out of Vanderbilt, my first week of practice, I had 50 new patients. Many of us uh, during COVID and after COVID, I mean, I I would kill for 50 new patients in three or four weeks now, right? So- So think how healthy the business was 20 years ago from a patient flow standpoint for that to be their overflow. So I was doing, I was operating my second week of practice simply because there were so many patients lined up. So they were doing something right. Namely, they were fantastic physicians, but not interested at all in the business. And so again, with no particular training or or experience, but interest in making our business better, I took over business operations.
0: Sounds like you started with them um, with the motivation to make some changes. What did you do specifically to help on the business side? And did it work?
1: We moved out of that old dusty office with the uh, 1970s interior design. And we had moved to three different brand new modern offices, three different locations within our catch area. And so we were able to straddle different referral networks, different primary care networks, different allergy networks, pulmonology and, and therefore build new referral patterns. We had brought in several mid-level providers. We've had a couple nurse practitioners, several PAs by that point, and figured out how to optimally use them. We, uh, of course, were paperless. We had uh, implemented our first EMR. We had a good digital presence. We had turned hearing aid and allergy into nice profit centers that were providing much better patient care. Most importantly, we'd gotten involved in sleep, cosmetics, all the adjacencies that we have at our fingertips in ENT. So I like to describe that time as we were busier because of our infrastructure in our business. And so at that time, this would have been about 2007 or 2008, other ENT practices around Dallas-Fort Worth started asking. Hey, can you guys help us find a PA and figure out how to utilize them? Can you help us with our hearing aid division where we're really underperforming? Can you help us start allergy? Can you help us with our revenue cycle? Meaning billing and collecting and coding and which we were happy to do, but we went ahead and formed a, a formal consulting company and that still exists today. Uh, it really is the underpinning of USC which we'll talk about in a second the large buying group that we have now. And over the last 13 or 14 years, we've managed all or parts of five different ENT practices, uh, sometimes completely from soup to nuts, managing the practice, sometimes just doing their billing and collecting, sometimes just uh, doing other parts for them.
0: That's awesome. Uh, We just had Jed Grizel on the show recently talking about how important it is to get the word out there to our colleagues in the community about all the things they can do to help grow their practices and run better businesses.
1: Yeah, and that's something that's near and dear to my heart, is, is helping my colleagues, helping our uh, fellow ENT physicians run better businesses, not for the money's sake, but that allows the physicians to be physicians and take better uh, care of their patients, right? When they're not constantly dealing with all the business aspects of things and uh, preoccupied and worried about those things that allows them to really put that energy into their patient care so that's how that company started over probably the subsequent three to four years you know i started to have ideas about how how we could expand this concept could this could this be a national company a national platform what did that look like would we be able to help practices nationwide and so uh, I thought about different options and very uh, fortuitously, I happened to be on vacation with my uncle. My uncle is a uh, oncologist, he's retired now, but a hematologist oncologist in Virginia Beach in Norfolk, Virginia. And he founded a company named U.S. Oncology. Uh, that's a whole topic in and of itself. But U.S. Oncology is about a 30-year-old company that takes advantage of its large membership of oncologists on a national basis to negotiate great pricing on all the chemotherapy and the paraphernalia necessary to treat their cancer patients um, and other other blood dyscrasias. It is a mechanism to do large scale clinical trials. So. The way that we currently treat breast and colon and many epithelial type cancers, those studies were done in this large U.S. oncology network, not at places you might think, you know, the big academic centers like in Houston or New York, the big cancer centers. And so uh, I just happened to be on vacation with him and was talking about the fact that he had just sold his company, U.S. Oncology, to the world's largest healthcare company named McKesson. Many of you are familiar with them. And I was talking about solutions for otolaryngology, which is the name of my consulting company. And, uh, he said, you know, Keith McKesson is so happy with the synergy from acquiring us oncology that they would like to bring this concept into other medical specialties. And so he long story short, introduced me to the powers that be at McKesson. And, and the ideas started to crystallize on what the local consulting company could look like on a national basis. And we considered lots of options. And again, these are other topics for, for future podcasts. Uh, we looked at the idea of what's called a private equity rollup.
0: I've heard about those. What is that?
1: Those are really hot right now as we sit here in 2021, but this would have been back in 2012, 2013. And most of us as physicians back then, there's still great skepticism now. But certainly back then, uh, we're really nervous about having business people buy part or all of our practice and essentially take control. Promising to do things better, but it made most of us very uneasy to, I guess, bequeath that control, even though we weren't running very good businesses as a rule. So that didn't seem to be, and it it was the right decision, that didn't seem to be the path forward. And so what we settled on uh, after talking to physicians around the country was the large buying group. And the specific term for that is a group purchasing organization, a GPO. And that's a formal legal structure. A A lot of people throw this around, even businesses that may be calling on ENT practices around the country, they like to call themselves GPOs. But it's actually a very formal legal structure and usually even requires auditing by a law firm to even prove that you are a GPO. And then you register with the federal agencies, the appropriate. So that's what we settled on doing. But let's pause on usent for a second, because what was happening around that time, if we all go back in time about 10 or 15 years. The transition of certainly rhinology procedures, but other things, uh, some otology, certainly facial plastics, a lot of, of procedures were transitioning from the hospital to the ASC and into our offices, right? So that was going on concurrent with the growth of, of my consulting company. And so all of a sudden, when we started looking at our own numbers in our practice, and we looked at numbers in so many practices around the country we realized that physician costs were skyrocketing. While it was fantastic to now be able to perform various rhinology procedures, such as the balloon and many other things in the office with different, read here, uh, higher reimbursement than what we would get in the hospital setting, we now had to pay the bills.
0: For those of us unaware of that overhead cost, can you give us an idea or range of what those costs are?
1: The number that we quote today, the average ENT physician, not the whole practice, but all of us individually in, in community practice, spends about 300000 sometimes even closer to $400,000 a year just on supplies. So that is not payroll, that is not rent, that is not utilities, that is not malpractice insurance. That's just on balloons and drug eluding stents and allergy supplies and hearing aids, et cetera. And so that's really why uh, we decided to form a GPO out of the consulting company. Because at the heart of the consulting company, we wanted physicians to run better businesses. Well, one huge aspect of that is controlling costs and controlling inventory. And so we went around, we went about the business of negotiating contracts with all of the companies that are germane to our space. So there's 10 or 12 or 15 hearing aid companies. There's really five, but they have different types of products. Uh, Of course, the balloon companies, the allergy companies, the, the uh, companies that provide us endoscopy equipment, CT scans, uh, EHR. And so we now have a suite of about 30 to 35 contracts with those entities that bring on average, about 20% discounts to physicians while still providing great choice. So the physician can still use the technology that she or he chooses to use. They're not required to switch to get better pricing. The suppliers love it because it's a way for them to engender loyalty within that particular practice for their technology. The physicians love it because that's money that they're saving and it goes back into the practice or, or into their pocket. And so. That $300,000 spend now gets closer to, you know, 215 dollars $220,000 a year. So it's, it's meaningful. It's meaningful and it's very, very gratifying. So that's the business side. Really what I want to leave the listeners with is there's nothing special about founding these companies. It's just a lot of work. All of us that have been able to procure an ENT residency, obviously we're I'm successful academically. We're intelligent people. We have, what I love about ENT is is people are just so interesting. Physicians are, have a variety of interests. And so we all really are capable of thinking of better solutions, like Ashley said earlier, and and thinking of better delivery of, of services or technology.
0: That's really helpful for those of us who have no real business experience or background. Like you were saying, it's just a matter of rolling up the sleeves, learning about it and finding the right team of people to help because the resources are out there. You just need to take the initiative and sometimes that's seeking out like-minded people and asking them for help. I want to switch gears now and ask you how you got involved in device development.
1: So here's how I did it. So around the time you know that we were streamlining our practice here in Dallas, that's when a clarant the uh, current Johnson & Johnson company launched their balloon and the concept of balloon sinuplasty. So this was about 2006 and 2007. For better or for worse, what the leadership of that company chose to do is to come out to community physicians like me. And much to their chagrin, I'm sure they they kind of bypassed uh, all of our you know, the wonderful folks that are in leadership positions in our academic centers. Subsequent companies learned to approach both the community physicians and the academic physicians. But Aclarant more or less did not do that. That being said, for me, that really lit the fire on the other aspect of, of what's turned into a fun part of my career. And that is product development. Because Clarent gave people like me a voice at national meetings. They gave me a chance to learn how to conduct clinical trials. All of those, uh, do you know, speaking engagements and teach and and train residents, things that I love, but I wasn't able to do by choosing community practice. This now uh, opened those doors again. And so doing that for several years afforded me some reputation with, with industry, with our, our companies that I liked to embrace new technology. I like to help test it. I like to put in my two cents on design. And so by the time 2011 came around and Intersect ENT was ready to launch their Propel Stents technology, they actually came to me to do the first couple cases. When I saw those Propel Stents, and and most of you are familiar with them since that's 10 or 11 years ago, I immediately thought of all the other things in the head and neck and the rest of the body that a structure like that could do, the Propel being a bioabsorbable structure that is capable of delivering drugs locally. So minimizing systemic side effects and having structural activity while doing so, that was just extremely intriguing to me. And so out of my naivete when uh, the leadership, and I I will always be thankful that most of industry has treated me very honestly and very fairly. Uh, we'll talk about some pitfalls before the end of, of this podcast. But for the most part, people are very above board and honest and helpful. And the leadership of Intersect ENT were no different. As soon as I started spouting off other ideas, they basically told me, Keith, shut up. You need to actually file some patents and protect this information and then come back and talk with us about that. And I had, it's hard to believe because I'm blessed now to have dozens and dozens of issued patents and things pending, but 10 years ago, I had no earthly idea where to even start with that. But nevertheless, I pushed through, got in touch with an IP attorney and filed. So that set off the, the other aspect of my career that I really enjoy. And that is device development. So in short, what. What uh, just a short nine or 10 years later is now available are post-septoplasty splints that are made of chitosin with all the beneficial properties of chitosin, of course, and they absorb so that we've designed them to be much more comfortable than Doyle splints or reader bivalves or the, the stuff that we use to splint now. When I was at Vanderbilt, we were still cutting uh, the top of Folgers coffee lids or, or using x-rays. Uh, my two co-hosts are too young to remember when we actually had real I x-rays,
0: real x-rays. Uh,
1: hanging in the <laughs> yeah. OR, but we used to do that was, that was the job of the second or third year resident, yeah. right? To get the actual x-rays and put it on the light box. But well, when we were done with the case, we would literally cut squares out of the corners and roll them up like cigarettes and put them in the nose as splints. Obviously there hasn't been much innovation in that space. And so we're very excited to have those devices and, uh, the, the other device company is, is a chitosan based myringotomy tube for all the beneficial effects there, you know, we, we see, uh, better wound healing. So there's fewer tympanic membrane perforations, uh, there's hemostasis. So, uh, you know, the typical tubes that we place, you know, a number of them are occluded immediately just from the blood clot, from the myringotomy that we made. They're defensive. So we don't have to worry so much about kids wearing earplugs, uh, in water exposure. Uh, because the the material itself is antimicrobial, so I'm sure we'll we'll talk about some of the pitfalls and, and the logistics of that. But that's the long answer, Gobi and Ashley, of why I completely unintentionally uh, sit here today, enjoying my practice, yes, but enjoying these other aspects of of the business sides of ENT.
0: I love looking like the from the beginning to see so many areas of improvement, whether it's within your practice to something clinical, and then scaling it and helping others. When you have that idea, you know it it seems very fortuitous. Like you know, you talk to your uncle, and how do you know who do you who to talk to, and then how do you know who to partner with? Like I don't know, is it just your sense of self? Like okay, this idea is valuable. How do you know when to go for it, or you know, how does that cultivate, right?
1: That's a great question. Well, uh, again, while most people have been very honest uh, and forthright and upstanding with me, there certainly are stories where our colleagues have had fantastic ideas and they, they weren't really credited, compensated for them. And so one does have to be careful who, who they talk to. And so what I've found helpful is, you know, talking at a high level with a, a trusted you know, even the, even the device reps that we work with every day are, are very intelligent, sophisticated people, and usually they can put you in touch with the business development team of one of these companies. So let's say someone has an idea in the otology space, you know, talking to their rep may put you in touch with uh, the upstream is another word that they use, but the folks that are developing new technologies or considering new technologies. Now, before you do that, they will always suggest, or you should, signing a non-disclosure agreement.
0: What is that?
1: What those are, an NDA, what those uh, legal agreements are, basically a promise that you're safe to share your idea, and usually there's an expiration date of two years or three years before the company or whoever received the information could share that, and those are important documents. You know, we, as, as just private physicians, it, it's hard to imagine going up against Johnson & Johnson or, or someone like that, but there have been some examples where the physicians have ultimately won because they had an NDA in place and the company went ahead and proceeded with developing some technology and didn't really compensate the physician adequately. But again, those are the exceptions. So first putting in place an NDA, and then I think we all just need to have confidence in our abilities. If you have a good idea, it's probably a good idea. If you think it is and you talk to a couple of trusted friends and they think it's a good idea, it's worth filing a patent. Now, how the heck do you do that? That that may seem daunting. And we all know lawyers are so expensive. I mean, just thinking of them costs $500, <laughs> right?
0: Depends on how many you minutes you telepath- think about that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Telepathically, you get a bill. and so. That can be a deterrent. But what is free is Google, right? So Google has an amazing search engine for patents, as does the USPTO, the United States Patent and Trademark Office. So spend a little time on the internet and type in the keywords of whatever your idea might be, whether it's a device, a, a drug, a technology. Uh, there are millions of patents that have been issued uh, since the late 1700s by the USPTO. See what's out there. You might be surprised that your specific idea is not covered. And what I have learned is that even if you have an idea that may seem similar to some things that are, are patented already with a good group of patent attorneys, you can usually find some angle that makes your idea different. Okay. Now that really provides a huge barrier to a company taking advantage of a physician. Even just having the patents filed, it takes years for them to issue, years. And, and that has gotten no, no quicker, trust me, uh, during COVID with the government running skeleton staff or some of these offices completely being closed most of 2020. There's a backlog, but that's okay. Because once you file an application, in most cases in the United States, you have almost 20 years. I mean, I think you have 19 years from the time that it's published, where you have at least some significant claim. So even if it does take three, five, seven, ten 10 years, which it can easily do, to actually become a formal patent, you're protected because you filed it. It all goes back to what's called the priority date. And I don't want to come across as an IP attorney. I just have been through this so many times. So the date that the application more or less was filed, meaning when it was published, when you could look on Google patents or you could look on the USPTO website and see, then anyone else that might have a similar idea, basically uh, you snooze, you lose, you've already filed it and you have it protected for a, a while. So with an NDA in place and with at least patents pending, that's the term for that, then you really can speak freely to uh, the appropriate companies, right? So then that's the next. So all these companies that we know and use their technology every day, they're big companies. It's very similar to what I talked about with McKesson earlier. They have no idea how to start an early stage concept and build it. These are huge companies for a reason. They are doing major things on a day-to-day basis operationally. They're not startups. And so those big companies buy startup companies. Once they've done all the developmental work, usually have, have launched a technology and shown that it has a place in the market. So that's the next. Uh, learning slash group of mistakes that I made is once I filed these patent applications in early 2012, uh, had NDAs in place. Then I went right back to Intersect and Clarent and Olympus and all the usual suspects and thought, oh, well, they'll love this idea of a chitosan based postseptoplasty splint. It's a no brainer. And they did love the idea, but they, these companies don't have a department for brand new projects where they have a whole bunch of cocktail napkins that physicians have scribbled images on where they're developing things. That's just not how it works. And I, I wasted probably two or three years talking with these companies and trying to get them to develop things with me.
0: So who do you go to?
1: Finally, I wisened up and by 2015, 2016, partnered with people that were skilled in early stage development. And so that's when really the devices took off. So when people seek my advice now on how to do this, if they have a good idea. So let's reiterate, get an NDA in place with the, the company that might someday buy it. I don't think it's, it's wasted time to start those dialogues, but similarly with people that can actually help you make it. If you need, like I needed with these, I needed specific polymer chemists that that knew how to work with chitosan which is a very tricky molecule knew how to 3d print knew all these these techniques that i didn't know where to even begin obviously you have to keep them under an nda as well and then file every possible angle of patent that you can to protect the design the method of using it the composition of the material or you know if it's a software program for example you know file technical patents I mean there's many many different types of patents file them all and then you're ready to start developing things then you're you're pretty well protected and then you look around and think okay well this isn't cheap to do this and so where where would I find the funding to do so well as physicians obviously we're we're fortunate to have um, nice income and to have colleagues who also have nice income and And so sometimes it it literally is a few of us that band together in an idea and at least finance the early stages of development, but there are all different levels of investors out there that are very interested in healthcare technology. You may have heard the term even from Netflix series and things, uh, but angel investors and VCs, that stands for venture capitalists or PE, that's private equity. Uh, So all these different buckets of money that are available for good technology, and they like to help early stage companies develop things. Now, no money is free, right? So that's the next pitfall that I've seen a lot of my colleagues fall into, and and to some extent myself, but thankfully I've been able to, to prevent this for the most part. Investors love physicians' ideas because they're usually good. They also love to give you just a little bit of money and take most of the company away from you. And so physicians have to be very hesitant and really treat every percentage of, of their company as absolute gold, platinum, and be very loath to give that away. And it's a, it's definitely a negotiation, right? I'm, I'm raising money for another device company now. And, and the investors will always come in and say, well, you know, yeah, you have some patents and this sounds like a good idea, but we think the company is only worth this much. And so we're going to give you, you know, give you the number that you asked for, but that means we want 25% or 51% of the company. And so there's always this push pull. And so, you know, that's where I always advise people to trust your gut, but never if you're the inventor never give up control you know you must remain 50.1 percent otherwise you you have no real direction anymore of of where the company can go Uh, so that's the next pitfall is being so diluted that you no longer have a voice to direct your own technology in the this path of the company forward i can't reiterate how important that is. You know, you can have partners that are just looking to flip like, like they're house flippers, and this is your baby. And they're just looking to, you know, to make a quick sale, make, make a few dollars and move on to the next thing. They don't care, but your technology gets lost and then someone else owns it and it may never come to market or you don't have control of what it looks like when it does. So that's the next uh, area to be so cautious about is fundraising. But that being said, then you finally get to a point uh, where you have technology that's ready to be tested clinically. And that's again, where we as physicians are so valuable. You know, engineers can come up with fantastic ideas and chemists and all these people, but they don't have access to patients like we do. And so it has been a real blessing, quite frankly, to be able to test things within my practice Uh, again you do it under a formal IRB review you do it all under the the proper channels but just being able to test it yourself in patients and and to make tweaks based on your own feedback is invaluable and and a real advantage for physician entrepreneurs Um, it's true in business services too right you your practice is basically your real uh, life lab and you can constantly test and refine and improve things
2: and what about like the FDA? where do they come in as far as approving devices and like the different classes? and at what point in the in the process does that kind of fall in?
1: Yeah, great question. So you know, we all are, or at least those of us that treat chronic sinusitis, which is most ENT physicians. Almost everything we do is off-label. And you hear that term all the time. Well, that's off-label, that's off-label. I mean, even using amoxicillin for a sinus infection is off-label. What that means is that the Food and Drug Administration has never approved that given substance for that given use, okay? And there's a lot of things that we do throughout medicine, certainly within ENT, that are not FDA approved. That being said, any new technology must. So early on, and thank you for bringing that up, Ashley, early on, you have to start paying attention to regulatory. So that's the buzzword that we're talking about here. What is the FDA going to say? There are different classes of devices and different pathways for approval. So a simple device that is similar to other devices. So nasal splints, nasal packing material. You know, we have so many choices on the shelf of our, our facilities in our office. So most of those can be considered class one exempt devices. So what that means is you have to tell the FDA that you've developed something different and notify them that you're coming to the market, but you list all the predicate devices and say, our device is somewhat like these. And, and then you can start selling. The middle pathway with the FDA is what's called a 510K, parentheses K. And that is a shorter but not short pathway to approval. And those devices are more novel. They um, may have features that are unique. There's not a obvious predicate device. There's something new about it. And so the FDA asks for formal study of that before you get what's called an indication. Okay. So using my devices, for example, on the one hand, you think, well, my chitis postseptoplasty splint could just be a class one exempt because it's like a doyle splint, it's like a reader bivalve, it's like nasopore, it's like any of that other stuff. And it is, but because I want my sales team to talk about hemostasis, talk about the antimicrobial activity of the device, those we believe, and we're being very conservative, um, and want to be very compliant, we believe those require 510K approval, where we actually show our device being antimicrobial. We have certain uh, ways to test the hemostasis. Uh, Being chitosan, quite frankly, we have to even show that shellfish allergic patients aren't sensitive to it, and there are many chitosan based nasal packing materials. We know that it's safe, but we can't assume that this is the FDA. And so we need to actually demonstrate all those things. So that being said, that can be as short as a nine to 12 month pathway, sometimes a little bit longer. And certainly some expense for the company, but not too onerous. The much bigger path, how a lot of drugs come to market, new pharmaceuticals, um, new devices like we talked about with the Intersect Propel Stent or the Intersect Sinuva implant. Those are PMA, pre-market analysis pathways, and that's a big deal. So that is typically a device or drug or whatever that's studied for seven to 10 years. Uh, it's often well into the nine figures, uh, well over a hundred million dollars spent to get that device approved. And that is for something that's completely novel, like a new drug, like the propel stents were back in. in 2011 when they were finally approved. So that's a big deal. So again, the physician, inventor, entrepreneur needs to think about their idea. And as they're raising money and thinking of a timeline, they need to factor these, these things in. The FDA approval is, is very important. You're going to need it someday. So it's important to think about it from the outset.
0: For the um... For example, the 510K uh, in parentheses, the chitis and stent, mm-hmm. you said it's like a nine to 10 month process. Is that something that you're just uh, then showing that, hey, this is how I use it in my practice? I've done it in, you know, 40 patients in the last nine months. We've seen this, this, and this. And that's how you do it. Or wh- what happens in that nine to 10 months to show, to test yes, the hemostasis and some of the other things that we're trying to say, hey, to get, I guess, validity for or approval for?
1: Right. So it's a lot of things, Kopi. It's, it's definitely the clinical testing, but a lot of it is benchtop testing. You know, a lot of it is done in Petri dishes and, and, um, in other models, literally like you're in chemistry lab. So it's that entire sum of data that you present to the FDA and what we're going for. I just want to make sure that we're clear. So then I, once you receive that approval, then my marketing materials my sales representatives can actually say our product is hemostatic before that if we just launch as a class one exempt i want to be real clear here yes most of us know kytosyn does those things but my sales team my website my marketing material cannot make those claims because the fda has not authorized us to make those claims and so that's why we, we thought, you know what, let's, let's not take any risk here. Let's make sure we're totally compliant and go for the 510k pathways. But thankfully we didn't have to do PMA. What would be an example of PMA? All right. If I took my postseptoplastic splint and I wanted to load a drug on it, I wanted to load an antibiotic or, or a steroid or something on it, or even use it as a delivery tool for something else like a vaccine, right? That's a PMA for sure, because it's a not only is it a new device, but it's an adding a drug to it. It's so complex. The FDA wants the full kit and caboodle, wants the whole thing studied. And so from a business side of things, a lot of times your initial ideas, lofty ideas may just not be practical because of the regulatory pathway, the expense of it, the time, uh, et cetera. And not to derail that topic, but that's really what a lot of the controversy about the um, various COVID vaccines w- was, was how fast it came to market. We all know as physicians that the FDA just prioritized it because of the worldwide public health crisis, right? But in normal, normal times, you know, a vaccine like that would have taken years to come to the market. The, the trials would have enrolled much more slowly. All the different factors along the way, that's how you look up and it's been seven to 10 years. So, so yeah, the physician, entrepreneur, inventor has to, to think about those things and maybe dumb their idea down a little bit, if you will, to try to stay within that 510K or class one exempt pathway.
2: So you could potentially try to file 510K and they could come back and say, oh, no, this is more a PMA type of idea.
1: Correct. And what they often do, Ashley, is if they don't say this is a PMA, they often ask for more data. And so sometimes the five ten k can drag out a little bit, but usually not seven to ten years.
2: What's nine to ten months? You know, if it can allow you to talk about other properties of the device, I mean, when you're thinking about years of yes, it, it being in production, nine to ten months is like nothing. That's like
1: absolutely patience. But you know, again, by this point, we have brought on a lot of a lot of non healthcare people. Right? We brought on all the house flippers all the investors uh i mean i was talking to an investor <laughs> last evening right that's uh, my favorite thing to do i say that very sarcastically because you know they think that you can just do these things despite COVID when we weren't even doing elective cases for months at a time right that um you can just snap your fingers and have fda approval and be launched and, and selling all these devices right so you're right and and from A physician standpoint, six to nine months to have two important claims is nothing, but uh, a lot of times there's a lot of heat from the investors who expected a return on their investment in a certain amount of time uh, and also aren't happy if we go back to them and try to raise a little more money to do some additional testing. So that's, again, one of the unpleasant balances that a physician entrepreneur has to walk is dealing with the people that invested. May not understand the clinical like we do.
0: Um, Just going back for a second, we talked about how okay, you have an idea, and it's not like all of a sudden you're going to partner with a big, you know, industry, you know, partner. But you have to go to like early stage device building, where you do have access to, you know, engineers and a lab. Where is that? Like, what are the early stage devices? I keep thinking, just because my practice is academic, so I think, okay, you go to UTD and pair it with somebody in their lab. But, yeah. but how do, Where? what are the options there? Who are the early stage?
1: Yeah, great question. Great question. So a lot of that is also serendipity, but let's take the example of a physician in an academic setting. Usually there is a, a robust product development department within that academic institution. Now, the downside is, in almost all cases, the academic institution owns your intellectual property, right? forevermore, even if you you leave. Uh, The uh, cancer drugs that I worked on during my time at Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt owns those patents, not myself and my co-researchers, right? Of course, as they should in most cases, because they provided the entire ability for the researchers to study that stuff. That is an important distinction for those of us out in community practice that we, we actually can control our own intellectual property, our own IP. So then it's, uh, it's a lot of who, you know, and I think as you gradually talk to people, even when you are talking to the large companies, a lot of times in my experience, they'll point you to the right level of investor, the right development team. And then trusting your gut and slowly but surely working working together. Great, great question. Who do you partner with? Who do you trust and who can actually execute? Same thing. You just look at their track record, their expertise, what they've done before.
2: So in kind of rounding it out today, we've talked about a lot, but I think a good place to kind of land it would just be your own reflections on you know what? What would you tell yourself, like, if you're, you know, looking back twenty years? What do you, what do you know now that you wish you had known back then before you started?
1: Yeah, well, I, I just, I really enjoy where my career has gone. I mean, I'm, I'm able to really enjoy my clinical practice still. I, I mean, I joke I'm, I'm full time, but I'm really not. Obviously, these things take a lot of my time, so I, I don't do clinic and surgery five days a week because I have so many other meetings but I love it. I mean, I'm, I'm able to still meaningfully care for patients, try new procedures. As I said at the outset, m- my specific location where I practice, I have really great patients. I thoroughly enjoy all that. I don't love all the charting and all the things that we have to do, like no nobody does. But overall, ENT is a wonderful specialty to practice because it's really seven specialties just tied together by anatomy. And so You can do whatever the heck you want and whatever you enjoy. So I love that. And I, but I really love even selfishly, just all these business things that have evolved, I'm really thankful for them and, and that adds so much. So I, I look forward to, you know, hopefully 20 years or more in the future, doing the same thing where I'm still able to take care of patients, touch patients, but continue to improve the specialty at large. My personal goal is to have everyone consider ENT the best medical specialty there is from any angle, right? First and foremost, from the patient angle, meaning we have treatments that work, that fix what they came in to see us for. But from the insurance company angle, right? We all hate insurance companies, right? But I want us to have a specialty where we're so adept at doing things in the office in a cost-effective way with good outcomes. That they save money on patients. I want industry to consider ENT, you know, the best part of their business because we have such high caliber physicians which we continue to attract. The match every year attracts the best kids out of medical school every time. I want that to continue. So I really want my companies to be part of that movement where ENT is the best medical specialty there is from any angle.
0: Well, thank you so much, Keith. Um, I echo that sentiment. <laughs> I, lo- I love that um, we attract the best and I love the progress that I think our specialty has the talent and desire for in so many different ways. I love your story. For sure. <laughs> it's inspiring.
1: Well, thank you again for this opportunity. Um, really enjoyed it and look, look forward to future opportunities.
2: Keith, if listeners want to connect with you um, or reach out to you, um, are you on any of the the socials, LinkedIn or Twitter? Or-
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, LinkedIn probably would be the easiest one. You know, my name, which I'm sure is provided with this podcast, please reach out to me. Just send me a message on there, connect with me. Again, so many hundreds of people have helped me. And so I really, really enjoy helping others get pointed in the right direction, being a resource, being a sounding board. So I welcome that for sure.
2: Yeah. Awesome. And I think e- ENT is a, is a smaller world than we think, you know, we think about like, you know, thousands of ENTs, but it's a pretty small community. When you start like looking at your network, people know each other and it's kind of cool.
1: For sure. There's only 10 or 11,000 of us. So, you know, you really can kind of be familiar with most people. And again, just because we're also generally nice and interesting, it, it's, it's a fabulous community. Yeah, I agree.
2: Awesome. Well, I think that's a that's a good place to to land the show today. So thank you, Keith, for coming on and talking to us. Thank you to our listeners. Um, be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to the show. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter at underscore back ENT. Go be what am I forgetting? I think that's it. It's a wrap. That's a wrap. <laughs> that's a wrap. Bye. Thanks. Thanks, guys. <laughs>
1: Appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT
2: is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan.
1: Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodgson and Ness Smith-Savadoff design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from
2: Taylor Version Hess, social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.